Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Well, in, uh, in Greek mythology, Sisyphus was the king of Ephra, or Ephyra, or what we now know as Corinth. And he was known for being crafty and deceitful. He would often trick his way out of punishment or things of that sort, or burdens uh, of the various gods in Greek mythology. But after numerous occasions, Sisyphus outsmarted and misled enough people, and Zeus had it up to here with him. Zeus, being known the king of the gods, grew furious with Sisyphus. And so Sisyphus was given an eternal punishment by Zeus. This endeavor to constantly push a large boulder up a hill. And once it got to the top, it would roll back down and he had to go push it up again. And this would be his hell that he lived in. Now, Sisyphus' struggle is the struggle of all humanity. We, too, are stuck trying to fill a void that really nothing in the natural world can completely satisfy. Now, these desires for things like joy, hope, meaning, satisfaction, they're good things. They're God-given, right? However, with these good and natural desires being misplaced and therefore often myth, uh, unfulfilled, we as humanity are trapped alongside Sisyphus. The Rolling Stones summarized this plight of humanity's endless endeavor when they sang nearly 60 years ago, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. Uh, today is the third Sunday of Lent, the annual season leading up to Easter weekend. Each year, hundreds of millions of Jesus followers, they metaphorically journey with Jesus uh, down the hill, that uh, instead of the insurmountable mountain of Sisyphus, and instead they journey to the desert with Jesus. And there we fast from something that we often tend to turn to instead of God, to satisfy or fill that hole in our hearts. And as we'll see, and hopefully as you're seeing, as you're partaking in Lent, if you are, in this abstaining from seeking to satisfy these desires by that practice, we open ourselves up to space for God to enter into our lives, perhaps show us things that, about ourselves or about Him that our lives have been too filled up with to see. So this morning we're looking at the topic of satisfaction. And we'll break it down, we'll look at satisfaction according to other faiths, according to our culture, and then according to Jesus, walking through this Isaiah 55 passage. And before we dive in, a couple things about Isaiah. If you're unfamiliar, Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He uh, lived roughly 
in the 9th, 8th century BC. He is the most quoted prophetic book by far in the New Testament. New Testament writers loved him. He's largely poetic, but there is some narrative. However, this book is not necessarily chronological. It's more thematic and of an anthology of his teachings. And then when I say his teachings, well, there's a debate there as well. Uh, they call it the Bible of the Old Testament because there's 39 chapters, and then there's a break, and then there's 27 more, similar to our Old Testament and New Testament canon. Uh, an overwhelming majority of scholars believe that there were at least two Isaiahs uh, that have been compiled into this book, mainly because between 39 and 40, there's about a 150-year gap, and we know Isaiah didn't live that long. There could be more. Isaiah alludes to a, potentially a school of his disciples, that he was training up other Isaiah disciples and prophets. Regardless, it doesn't totally matter or change the outcome of what we're reading here today. The reality being that Isaiah spans this great uh, time period for the nation of God's people, Israel. And he's talking to them in particular in a time where they're experiencing a lot of prosperity, but at the same time, because of their prosperity in monetary, physical ways, safety, things of that sort, they've grown complacent. They've grown complacent. They assume that God had been blessing them because of them, their own good works, their own good deeds, their own religious uh, adherence to him. Mainly because they had acquired wealth um, and physical prosperity. But we learn throughout Isaiah that God is not so pleased with them because their prosperity is mainly on the backs of the poor. There's sexual promiscuity that is just rampant. And there even is idol worship. Both, both physical statue worship, but also the worship of monetary uh, goods, comfort, status, things of that sort. So let's walk into satisfaction according to other faiths. Uh, Taoism, Taoism, I can't really pronounce it that well, but in Tao Te Ching, they write, people would be content with their simple everyday lives in harmony and free of desire. When there is no desire, all things are at peace. That's a key line there. When there is no desire, all things are at peace. There's this view that uh, as we push down our desires, minimize them, we then will be at peace. Buddhism holds a similar view with regards to our desires. The Dalai Lama wrote, when you are discontent, you always want more, more, more. Your desire can never be satisfied. But when you practice contentment, you can say to yourself, oh yes, I already have everything I really need. Similar, it sounds nice, right? Practice contentment. How do you do that? What's the path? Yuval Harari, he's a most likely an atheist or agnostic uh, historian around today. In his book, Sapiens, he summarizes Buddhism in this way. That according to Buddhism, the root of suffering is neither the feeling of pain, nor of sadness, nor even of meaninglessness. Rather, the real root of suffering is this never-ending, pointless pursuit of ephemeral feelings, which causes us to be in a constant state of tension, 
restlessness, and dissatisfaction. Due to this pursuit, the mind is never satisfied. Even when experiencing pleasure, it's not content because it fears this feeling might soon disappear, and it does. And craves that this feeling should stay, and not just stay, but intensify. People are liberated from suffering, that not when they experience this or that fleeting pleasure, but rather when they understand that the impermanent nature of all their feelings, and they stop craving them. This is the aim of Buddhist meditation practices. In their meditation, you are supposed to closely observe your mind and body, witness the ceaseless arising and passing of all your feelings, and realize how pointless it is to pursue them. And when the pursuit stops, the mind becomes very relaxed, clear, and satisfied. All kinds of feelings go on arising and passing, joy, anger, boredom, lust. But once you stop craving particular feelings, you can just accept them for what they are. The resulting serenity is so profound that those who spend their lives in frenzied pursuit of pleasant feelings can hardly imagine it. Now again, both Taoism and Buddhism, these sound nice. We actually, there's, there's strands of truth. There's things we agree with there. However, there's two problems. One, it devalues our suffering. Because to the Buddhist, our suffering, those feelings of absence, those feelings of loss, of grief, are something that we are to diminish, to not indulge. That because this is all fleeting, therefore it has no lasting purpose, so get over it. At some point you're going to die, and that's it. So why does it matter? So instead, stop thinking about it. Stop focusing on it. and achieve peace, nirvana. The other problem is it dismisses our desires. We have these innate desires, it acknowledges them, and yet at the same time, both Taoism and Buddhism is calling us to diminish, if not destroy, eliminate our desires. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think if we really got down to that, uh, that is kind of the opposite of what humanity tends to think. And even our culture, we're a very self-indulgent culture, yes? In the West in particular. You do you. Be your true self. Live your best life. These are mantras of our day. And yet one of the largest faiths in the world tends to dismiss arguably the God of our culture, our stomach, our appetites our desires. So this dismisses our desires, whereas the way of Jesus, rather than devaluing our suffering and dismissing our desires, when we bring both in submission to the way of Jesus and to God's rule and reign, it gives meaning to our suffering, gives hope for our suffering, that this is not all there is, that there is redemption coming. Hence, as we're walking in towards Holy Week, we, we anticipate hope, resurrection coming, but then it doesn't simply dismiss our desires either. It actually gives us a greater place to, to find fulfillment of our desires. It begins to bring answers to our questions, color to our black and white photos, 
salt and pepper and hopefully even garlic to our sometimes bland Amish food. Um, sorry, sorry Amish folk. <laughs> you guys told me this, sorry. Every time I go to an Amish place, you guys are like, put some salt and pepper on it. Um, <laughs> Next, satisfaction according to our culture. Well, we, we kind of started into that. What does our culture seek satisfaction in? Well, there's, there's a couple predominant ones. There's, there's a, an article called The Religion of the Market by David Loy. And he discusses this mass media never-ending insistence that we constantly demand more, more, and more. Hence, our streaming services, right, as a great example. This was in 97, but man, every streaming service has to give us how many new shows or movies every day, every week, or else I'm gonna cancel that trial. It's not worth, I'm gonna share that Netflix subscription password with my friend because it's not worth my money. There's not enough on there. Or, you know, in regards to any sort of avenues of life, are as big as our houses, our cars, our phones, our vacations. Man, it's, it's maddening to think that just a decade and a half ago when I was a teenager, um, man, my parents didn't have that expense of buying me a cell phone. And now kids as young as elementary school are getting these $1,000 computers in their, in their pockets that are more powerful than the computers that launched the, well, anyways. They're these powerful devices, but they also come with apps and subscriptions and monitoring subscriptions and all these things, these more, 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 in order that if we don't have them, if our kids don't have them, if our teenagers don't have them, if we don't have them as adults, we can't possibly exist and flourish as a human being without said smart devices. But the expenses, the accumulation of said wealth and things that you have to have in order to be a better and more full human are coming earlier, they're pressing earlier on in your kids' lives and in our generation's lives, and they're pressing more and more. Similarly, if you've ever heard of uh, the, the most prevalent and rising religion in America, the religion of youth sports, and I would argue extracurricular activities. This is not a joke, it's a well-known social phenomenon. Data is showing and how, and its characteristics, how much it is becoming a religion. Sports in general, right? I mean, people spend $4 million on a Babe Ruth jersey, but in particular, youth sports. It's fascinating to think even more so again 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that uh, when I wanted to play sports, I just went out in the cul-de-sac. I didn't have to spend thousands of dollars every year to be in a practice every, every day of the week and have games and all this stuff and travel and, and somehow having to pay to get on an airplane for my eight-year-old, for my 10-year-old. Wow, it's crazy. But you have to do it because if you don't do it, your kid's not going to fit in. You won't fit in because you're not in community with those people. Again, all around us, these things are pressing and pressing and saying, come earlier, more, more, more. And even as, as, as little as the inexpensive things at bulk stores and restaurants, right? We all want the add-on for a dollar. Why do you think McDonald's sells a soda for a dollar, any size? 
because it's so easy to get you to buy more. It's just a dollar. Why do you think an ad shot at Starbucks is 50 cents? Like, it's just one, it's just 50 cents. Or why do you think the dollar section at Target or at Walmart is the most popular and prevalent thing? It's a bunch of stuff that you never knew you needed, but once you saw it, you couldn't live without it. And it's only a dollar. It's only a dollar. It's only two dollars, whatever. But then years later, when you're trying to move and you're cleaning out your house, you're like, why did we buy all this stuff? More, more, more. We see this even in our careers and vocations. Our culture particularly presses this. And this goes back to the religion of the market, even so. Ryan Holiday, he's, an, he's a prominent author of the last decade, in particular in, in a lot of the business and social worlds. Uh, he writes, we all have goals. We want to matter. We want to be important. We want to have freedom and power to pursue our creative work. We want respect from our peers and recognition for accomplishments, not out of vanity or selfishness, but of an earnest desire to fulfill our personal potential. And I, and I would largely agree. You know, it's, it, there's, there's nothing innately wrong about being told and commended for your work, right? It's when it borders into praise, or if that becomes your motivation for living, I need to do this to get the next promotion or the next pay raise, or you know, be recognized in my office or place of work or at home. Now, I can't pronounce this name. Um, I, I looked it up on Google. I listened to it many times. Forgive me. But the Brothers Karamazov, written by Fyodor Dostoevsky, whatever, um, he's a 19th century writer, and he was largely an Orthodox Christian, but he writes of this endless striving for satisfaction. He says, the world says, you have needs, satisfy them. You have as much right as the rich and the mighty. Don't hesitate to satisfy your needs. Indeed, expand your needs and demand more. This is the worldly doctrine of today. And, the, and they believe that this is freedom. The result for the rich is isolation and suicide, and for the poor is envy and murder. Because as the rich accumulate it more and more, it drives them apart. And yet, even at the top, they realize, hey, this isn't all it's talked up to be on the advertisements. And yet for the poor who doesn't have them, there is constant envy and even murder to obtain that which we do not have. That's why addictions, vices, and such, they know no income level, right? Perhaps the poor are more prominently uh, exposed or even preyed upon, but Drugs, sex, work, technology addiction, these, the, all these addictions and more, they know no social class. Every human and every social class in the West in particular deals with these. They are handicapped by these. They are burdened by these. That's why in Isaiah 55, in verse 2, the writer asks, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? 
and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, he, he writes of these things that we often look to and, and, and indulge in, good things in and of themselves, but when they become gods, becomes a problem. He writes, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, they're good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. We're looking at the shadow of something. We're trying to find and worship, find hope in and worship the shadow when God's saying, no, I'm up here casting this shadow. All of creation shadows me. It, it, my shadow is ever-present. I've embedded it throughout all of creation, and yet you're looking down. Look up. See that this points to me. That's why I like when Lewis says, when the thing itself, when, it, when, when these things become mistaken for the thing itself, when these things become mistaken for God himself. The last Lewis quote before we get into satisfaction according to Jesus. And this is one quote that for me in my faith journey towards the end of high school, um, this quote in particular was, was a pretty, and this, this chapter was pretty prevalent in, in the Spirit opening my eyes to see um, the reality of God more. Lewis writes, The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Humanity feels sexual desires. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it or to point to it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be thankful for these earthly, uh, to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or a mirage. I must therefore keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned inside out. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. And as Lewis is pointing us to, lastly, satisfaction in and according to Jesus. God made us with these desires, but as Lewis notes, Isaiah is going to point to us that these needs were meant to drive us to the one who can truly satisfy these. So starting in verse 1, I mean, this is why Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. 
Yes, physically, give us our physical food, but that physical food is meant to point us, again, a shadow of the figure of the true bread of life. So starting in verse 1, Isaiah says, Ho, everyone who thirsts. Now this phrase, ho, it sounds weird. Um, It's a phrase that essentially in those days are water cellars, which, yeah, there were things called water cellars. I was like, what is that? Uh, But in the market, you know, there wasn't just tap water. You know, they're selling jugs of water. And they're calling out in the markets. Essentially, you're walking down a farmer's market, or if you've ever been to like a busy market, the one up in Cleveland, I forgot the name, but they're out there selling and shouting at you to come buy their fish, that type of thing. It's that type of energetic market saying, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How is that possible, right? How do we come, those of us who have no money, and how do we then buy and eat? And notice the things he's, he's mentioning. Saying, you know, thirst, come to the waters. Wine, milk, water. Eventually he gets to bread. These basic things of substance, milk being, and, and bread being, and water being symbols of substance. Wine being symbols of even celebration. Come buy. Notice that this is nothing you yourself can come and buy on your own. We can't do that on our own. That's why we have, we have no money to bring to the table. We have nothing to bring to the table. We don't bring anything to the table on our own apart from Christ, right? He continues, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. What are you doing seeking satisfaction in things that are not me or of me? See, even things such as relationships can be that idol. If you're ever in a significant relationship or a friendship or a dating or marital relationship of that sort, even a parent, any sort of person, those are not meant to be, even in marriage, not meant to be the main source of love and, and, and hope and purpose. They are meant to point you to the marriage of Christ and his church. Our youth pastor, I remember, would tell us all the time, and I would love going to his weddings, because he would ask in his vows, uh, ask in, their, in his questioning of them, you know, do you promise to love them in a way that shows her and the world, or him and the world, that they are not God, but God is God. It was very heavy. It was very thought out. And I was like, wow. And to that, you know, that, that, that little Steve-ism, Steve's his name, he's got a couple of those one-liners that just sticks with us. And I can hear him saying it to me now. <laughs> Why are you trying to feast on things that are not bread? Why are you investing in these things? He's not saying don't eat. He's not saying don't drink, right? He's not saying don't live and love and, and enjoy marriage and family or friendships or vocation or anything of that sort. But he's saying don't make them your substance. Don't make them what defines you. He continues, listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. 
Those other things that you're eating, man, it's junk food. It's those late nights where you're like, dude, nothing's open but Taco Bell. I should just get it. And then middle of the night, your stomach's like, no. You knew it, too. <laughs> you knew it. It wasn't going to satisfy. It would temporarily hit the fix, right? You'd get that little hit, that, that, that momentary satisfaction. Whatever that is that gets you that little jump, that little, even that little high, but at some point, you come down that mountain and you've got to push that boulder up again like Sisyphus. Delight yourselves in rich food. He continues, incline your ear and come to me. This is him speaking as, this is God speaking through Isaiah. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant and my steadfast, sure love for David. He's, he's foreshadowing Jesus coming here. See, I made him a witness of the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And if you weren't with us last week, I mean, this is where we were getting at. That through our attention and our affections being cultivated in and through and for Jesus, in our life and love for God, Vertically, it starts pouring out horizontally in our households, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our communities. He's saying, you come to me, you feast on me, it's going to be contagious. It's going to spread, it's going to be a blessing to others. And lastly, he concludes, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What are those verbs there? He says, seek, call, forsake, return. Seek true satisfaction. Seek true substance. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. Sorry, two more verses. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The call is to seek God here and now. Stop putting your trust and faith, stop putting our attention and affections uh, being rooted in the things of this world. But let them be what they are. Gifts, vessels that point us to the gift giver. Let them point us to the true gift giver. Thomas Merton writes, A life is either all spiritual or not spiritual at all. No man can serve two masters. 
Your life is shaped by the end that you live for, and you are therefore made in the image of what you desire. You are made in the image of what you desire. And obviously, we're all made in God's image. He's more speaking metaphorically, yes. But we are formed by that which we give our attention and affection to. That which we worship, we become like. That which we seek, our meaning, our joy, our hope, our significance in, our salvation in, we become like our purpose in. So the call is to return to God. The call in this time, in particular in Lent, as we wrap up, it's to devote this season, in, again, in anticipation of the coming King, but in His coming, uh, taking His throne, starting on Palm Sunday, but His throne was not the earthly throne, it was the cross. And through that cross, He received His crown in the resurrection. And that's what we are to anticipate and approach, that humble God in that throne shaped like a cross. But what have you been turning to? What have we been turning to? What have you been pretending is bread? When you're thirsty, what have you been seeking to quench your thirst? I know for me, the thing I've been fasting from, uh, again, it, you know, it's still tempting. Um, but it more and more, as the, as the days progress, you... you you realize, oh, how much there was just an innate inclination to seek some sort of dopamine hit or some sort of feeling of understanding or peace or arrival in that action. But what are you turning to? Maybe, maybe it's something simple, yes, but it could be something big. Maybe it's something in your vocation or the way you're relating to people. Maybe it is relationships. Maybe it's career um, and the striving to obtain more and more, to just get that next, I know that feeling, that endeavor to just get your savings account a little higher. I know for me, we planned a trip a little bit ago, and I'm, I'm like, I just want to get to the trip. But guess what? The trip's never, <laughs> it's never heaven on earth. It just isn't. You need to see it for what it is. Keep it at where it's meant to be. What are you turning to? What are you seeking to be your bread instead of the bread of life? This morning, we are inviting each of you to come to the table, participate in what's called communion, uh, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you refer to it as in your background. We invite you to the table to partake in communion. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, I received a tradition from the Lord, which I also handed on to you. On the night on which he was betrayed, the Lord took bread. And after he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And he did the same thing with the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, do this to remember me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you broadcast the death of the Lord until he comes. Instead of partaking in the bread that we so often go to in our daily lives, I encourage us each to take time. The band's going to play a couple songs, and I believe they'll even play an instrumental up front just to give us time to come up and grab the elements. There is gluten-free bread in the uh, bowl there, and there's cups of juice, and then if you'd like, there's also the prepackaged ones on both sides. So we invite everyone who is a follower of Jesus, after you have taken time to prayerfully reflect and, and maybe even if you have something to confess to God, I encourage you uh, to do that. He's faithful and just to forgive, but to make that prayer on your own before coming and partaking in the Lord's Supper. And yes, we invite you up to the table to both receive uh, the bread and the wine, or the juice, We're, we've got juice here, um, but then to also uh, give. If, if LifeBridge is your local church, we do encourage you to uh, give sacrificially in a way so that the mission of the church can continue to go forward. And after that, uh, we invite you to joyfully sing. Uh, sing out to God, he's worthy of our praise. Now, typically, I understand we've taken communion kind of all at the same time, but we are more inviting in this time, come at your own pace and place. And we encourage you, if you want to do it on your own, you can, but we encourage you to do, partake together, whether it be in households or family or friends, but find people to partake in communion together with, pray together, and enjoy. Seek the bread of life. And as you're praying, ask God, to remind you, remind you not just in your head, but in your soul, deep within your bones, that He is the bread of life, that He is the water of life. I'm going to read, I'm going to invite the band up and then I'll read a prayer. But this prayer is from, um, I didn't write this, but I thought it was relevant for this morning's topic. And band, I invite you to, I, I should have said this, you guys can take communion as we, um, as on your way up, why don't you grab some elements if you'd like. But I'm going to lead us in this prayer. Uh, would you bow uh, or, or however you pray, uh, would you pray with me? O God of ever-flowing grace, you fill our every need and satisfy our every hunger. As we come before you to feast on your goodness, our mouths are filled with praise for your wonderful name. From generation to generation, you have sustained your people. In the deserts of life, you bring forth springs of water. When we encounter the storms of life, you are our refuge. You nurture us as your own beloved but we do not bear fruit often. We are hardly satisfied. We seek out the comforts of this earth and in so doing dishonor you, the giver of every good gift. 
And while we are liable for judgment, your grace is sufficient. We praise you, O merciful God, for sparing your wrath for us. And we praise you for forgiving our sin and freeing us to follow you with joy. Led and sustained by your Spirit, your church has continued to this day. We ask that you anoint us, Holy Spirit, that we may become your witnesses, calling our neighbors and nations of the world to run to you, the Holy One. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.